the Dallas Soccer Show. I'm Dustin Nation. Well, the rest of the crew and I are in the middle of our off-season downtime. We're kind of refreshing, recharging, and spending time with our families right before we get into the swing of things. We hope that everyone had a fantastic holiday season. I don't think we've talked since then. Um, but yeah, we're, we're excited for the season to get underway. But before it does, there's this little thing that needs to be sorted out between the players and the owners called a CBA. And if you're like me, it's something that's kind of been on the edge of your mind, but you're not really sure what it actually means. I kind of have this mental picture of some people getting in a room and fighting about whether the players have to ride in the coach on planes or not. But the truth is that it's a lot more than that. There's a lot more to it than the travel. And there's always the possibility that no agreements can be made and there's no season for 2020. There's so much going on that I thought it'd be good to break it all down from the beginning. Let's really understand the history, the who, the what, the why of, of a negotiation that will set the vector of the league for the next five years. Let's call it a sort of CBA for dummies, me being the chief dummy. In my other podcast, FC Nation Podcast, I did an episode on scouting in which I talked to Scott Resendez of the Soccer Syndicate about scouting. It's kind of a domestic scouting company and... Little did I know that Scott is actually a former MLSPA employee and even a former USL GM. So who better to explain all of this CBA business to me than a man that's been there right in the thick of it from close to the beginning of the MLSPA. This conversation was extra super educational for me, and I'm sure you'll learn a thing or two as well. So here's my conversation with Scott Resendez. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Dustin. Thanks for having me today. All right. So I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about the upcoming collective bargaining agreement negotiations between the MLS and the Players Association. Um, you have some some unique experience with this. Uh, how, are, how are you involved with the MLS Players Association? Well, uh, um, I don't have any current involvement, but uh, I worked for the Players Association all the way back in uh, two, between 2006 and 2009. Um, uh, I was one of the first employees uh, that worked there uh, and was involved in preparations for the, the collective bargaining agreement uh, that, uh, from 2009, um, the, the negotiations that year, uh, which was, I guess, two CBAs ago. Um, and there's been a lot of progress and growth, uh, from the league, from the players perspective since then. Um, but yeah, no, I've been, uh, I've been kind of around it and understand kind of, you know, the different, uh, components of it. Um, so yeah, this is going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, it's a exciting time, a, a lot of moving parts, you know, a lot of teams publicly right now talking about what they can't do because of, uh, you know, waiting to see how the CBA falls and, and what that means for them. So I, I think it's uh, it's an interesting time in the league, for sure. Absolutely. So let's just start with, with the, the real basics, right? Yeah. Why, why do we even need an MLS Players Association? Yeah, you know, a, um, a Players Association is there to represent the, the interests of all players um, from the – you know the biggest stars to the uh, rank and file, the you know the 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 first year players with with no experience in the league, um, combining all of their needs 
and, and specific desires into a collective um, and representing on behalf of the players uh, as their, you know, unique bargaining uh, unit um, and, and representing all of the beliefs of the players and desires um, uh, with management. And, and that collective voice is stronger in theory than each individual fighting on their own. You mentioned that they are a collective. Would that be the collective in collective bargaining agreement? Yes, it would be. Uh, you know, the, the collective bargaining again is is you know every every human being when they go into you know if if you think about your own uh, you know job negotiation and and when you when you try to negotiate with an employer uh, for your work your your employment terms your specific needs in life you know even as you grow in your own career the needs and desires that you have in different phases of your life change. Um, and, and when you look at, you know, hundreds of players all coming into the same league, each individual's desires can, can range widely, you know, from cost of living, you know, cost of living, uh, health care, uh, support for family. Uh, there's so many different aspects that each play, you know, some players have specific needs. Other players have completely different needs and, it's, you know, again, the responsibility of the Players Association to advocate on behalf of all players for all needs that would be um, important to them. When, when they first started and the MLSPA first kicked up, what were some of the issues that were important back then and some of the contentious things back then? Yeah, so actually the MLS players – so when I worked there, we were the MLS Players Union. They've now um, – changed their name to the players association. Um, and the part of that is because the initial, th this is the second iteration of a player's representation body, uh, representative body on behalf of the players. The first one, uh, was back, uh, again, this players association launched in 2003. Um, but, but the previous iteration was uh, an offshoot of the NFL Players Association. They took on representation of MLS players um, and led to, um, which culminated in a lawsuit against MLS, um, you know, Frazier versus MLS. Uh, and so, so the previous iteration of the Players Association sued the league uh, for, you know, to uh, break up single entity uh, and work on that, and they, they ultimately lost in court. Um, and so this players association launched in 03, kind of off the heels of that disaster, if you will. Um, and it was picking up the pieces, kind of redefining what was important to players and how you, you know, how, how we went from there, how we stepped away from, from that, those decisions made by the previous representation, um, to launch a new and start a fight from, from a different, uh, you know, from a different vantage point from, uh, you know, start recollecting, uh, the players thoughts and, and, and focus on what was important, uh, to rebuild, um, the union. And so now we are what, 16 years in. Yeah. Um, so going on 17 and this will be the fourth CBA that they, that they're negotiating. Um, so there's been a lot of progress, uh, you know, back when I worked at the Players Association in 06, even three years in, uh, we were just opening our first uh, standalone office structure back then. Um, and so, again, we were two full-time employees and, and with outside legal counsel. And I think now there are over 
15 employees, uh, 15, you know, between 15 and 20 with the Players Association. So there's been quite a bit of growth in just the 10 years that I've been gone there. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the players, you know, it's, it's, it's a process. You, you know, you're only, as, you're only able to grow as quickly as you have the money to fund that growth. Um, and, you know, through player dues and other outside, uh, you know, financial revenue streams uh, that the association has, they've been able to amass a, a war chest to be able to, to get involved in more projects um, and and grow more things in terms of, you know, supporting the players and, and you know, uh, protecting them in, in whatever efforts that the players deem important to them. With the negotiations that are coming up, uh, I would like to take a little bit of a look into what the negotiation process is like. So in the, yeah. in the time that you were involved, what what were the negotiations like? Do they go into a room and just yell at each other or how does this all work? So, yeah. So, so typically, you know, um, negotiations begin um, between the Players Association and, and the league uh, with, you know, over the phone conversation and, and correspondence, the exchange of ideas and thoughts about kind of what the the important components are uh for each side um and as you get closer to decision time and and the 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 day in which uh um you know closer to to the expiration of your deal there's more in-person uh meetings and conversations um and what i've seen over the last uh you know decade or so um, both from being involved and then and then now just kind of watching from afar is that these conversations have be, have started to ramp up sooner and sooner I think in the in the time frame with with more with more build up um, with giving more time to really flesh out um, you know bigger ideas um, because I think with each CBA you see an expansion of just how detailed. Those conversations, you know, how detailed that document is, and how many rules and and specific um, components there are to it. Uh, you know, the first CBA was was far more bare bones in terms of what it, you know, the the nitty gritty it dug into, versus now, you know, the CBA is far more in depth, uh, focusing on a lot of different topics that that just weren't collectively bargained back then. For a lot of reasons, whether they they weren't deemed important or or there there just wasn't enough um, uh, reason to really dig into those those parameters uh, more in a more detailed fashion, um, and so as a result of that, you know, I know conversations for this CBA um, I began began over a year ago, um, you know, and so there's been a lot of ramp up, a lot of conversation um, in this negotiation then say you know the i was involved mostly in in uh the build-up to the second uh cba in which conversations started much much later in the process um so, so i think that's a that's a big change that's a um you know b- but but that's common i think as as leagues grow as there's more at stake um you know it's the the dynamic changes and i think that's where what we're seeing now um and so i think at this stage in negotiation here we are what less than two weeks, I think, from the expiration of the, of the agreement, um, where they are very much in in full blown face to face meetings, uh, exchanging of formal ideas um, as they try to determine, you know, the components of the deal that will be easier to get 
push through uh, where they're much closer in terms of ideas ver versus the areas of the negotiation, which they are far apart and may have to dig in much deeper um, to try to find resolution. You mentioned that the, the issues that were involved back uh, in the previous negotiation, previous bargaining agreements um, are different than they are now. Can you give us some examples of, of some issues that were kind of push button or hot button issues in the negotiations you've been involved in? Yeah. I mean, back, back in the, um, you know, years ago, issues that were really important to the players, I, I can't speak on behalf of the league, um, but it was more caring about the, the bottom end of, of, uh, you know, the focal points were how do we protect, uh, the, the lowest earners, uh, in the league? Because the, at the time, uh, wages for reserve players in the league was, you know, substandard living. We're talking between 17 and $20,000 a year income for players. Um, and, and in many ways, um, th those players on a roster were, a detriment to the growth of the league in the sense that they, they, they would come to work every day and, and worry about how they were going to put food on the table, how worry, how they were going to continue to work in this industry in which they, they struggled to live. Um, and so, so that was a burden on a lot of people, not only the, those players individually, but also the players in the locker room around them, the leadership of the players association um, that made it very, very difficult uh, for everyone. Um, because you saw your teammates struggling and you, and you didn't have the resources to help them, um, but you had to be there to support them as best as possible. Um, it put a lot of strain on the clubs because the clubs had to figure out within the constructs of the rules of the CBA how they could further support their players um, that were struggling financially. Um, and so thankfully, with the growth of the league now 10 years on, I, I can safely say that I think every player in the league is earning a, a living wage um, and then some where, where that's not – those concerns don't exist anymore. Um, uh, and so now the – well, I mean, you're always focused on the bottom end and moving up my uh, – you know, the minimum salaries, minimum benefits, all those things. That, that will never go away, I think, in, in any CBA, in any negotiation – in any business, you're always worried about the bottom end, um, but it, but it's not as big a concern as it was back then, um, where it was there were literally players that were questioning whether or not they could continue on, um, in, you know, in in this line of work, given given the parameters in which they were allowed to to do that work. Um, so so that's a big change for sure. Um, uh, you know, now I think f the focus is more on bigger bigger theories in terms of how you split the pot. You know, the, the control of money um, on behalf of clubs, the league, and how that gets uh, parsed out to all players in the pl in the player pool, whether it be foreign, domestic, um, homegrown, uh, you know, a player coming through a non-homegrown setting, um, you know, on the international side, designated players versus uh, a TAM-level player versus just a, a, a player that doesn't you know, would be an international, but wouldn't qualify in either of those two facets. So there's a lot more, you know, focus on trying to break up that segmentation of, of, of the player pool as a whole into these different, uh, different subsets um, to make it more equal in terms of 
here's your your pool of money. Spend it how you want on on whatever players you want to um, add to your team. Looking back on the negotiations you've been a part of, has any are there any memorable moments that you can just think of? Um, like anything outlandish yeah, happen? <laughs> you, you know it. Um, you know, going back to what I was talking about before with the with the player pools the way they were, uh, you know, player salaries at the low end. You know, w- what we were really talking about was reserve squads. You mm-hmm. know, and and at the time, you know, you had rosters in the what the low twenties uh, back in the day. I, I struggle to remember the exact number of roster spots that MLS had in 06 to 09, but I, I want to say it was the low twenties, twenty three, twenty four. And um, players on the on you know on the bottom end of the roster, the league as a whole, everyone involved in the process struggled to figure out how these players were going to find minutes um, and and how they were going to develop. Um, so player development, while not a collectively bargained component of a CBA, was walking hand in hand, and and just the the discussion of what do we do with these players? How do we develop them? How, you know, are these roster spots um, on the back end of the teams? Are they even worth it right now? Um, and, and we debated that quite a bit in terms of what do we do with these, these back end players? Cause they're not, they're not playing, they're not growing. Um, they're struggling to live. They're, they're more, in many ways, they're more trouble than they're worth uh, in terms of the overall environment and the growth of the league. But they're important. They're, you know, they're, you know, obviously, as we've seen the growth of USL now and the integration of USL into what we're doing, the, the you know, development in soccer here in the, in the United States since we've developed a, a full-fledged second division, third division now, um, has grown tremendously, and players are are, are in a much better place. Um, and and back in 06 to 09, that was a major point of contention. Of we don't have it right. We don't have a a system that's working and it's affecting the players. It's affecting growth. And so there were a lot of conversations about what to do. Do we, you know, do we scale back the number of, of players in, in the pool? Um, there was, a, you know, a lot riding on it at that point. So to me, the memorable moments were, what do we do? Uh, Cause you never, you know, as a, as a association, you never want to give back jobs. You never want to, um, you know, take jobs out of the market, but but there was some real open discussion about doing that because we thought, uh, you know, removing some of these jobs that were difficult and not great jobs were, uh, you know, I, I, they were just jobs where guys struggled and did they make the most sense to still be around until the development system worked? And so just to see the the growth of of the league and and developing players. And, and those jobs being much more valuable and important to the league overall. Um, I think that's, I think th- what sticks out in my mind the most is, is just how much 10 years ago that was hanging in the balance. Um, yeah. In my mind, I, I guess I have this whole thing as being pretty contentious with an adversarial where you've got one side against the other side and that they just have to duke it out. But it sounds to me like you're describing something that's, solutions oriented and you're cooperative and trying to come up with the best solutions, um, at least on some of these things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, listen, it's, it's a, it's a back and forth, um, to say that there's not been contentious moments. 
um, throughout negotiations, I think is it would would be naive. Um, back in the when I was there in the second negotiation, uh, there was just re- really real issues that needed to be addressed. Um, that those hurdles had to be get, gotten over, and and a real conversation about what the what the possibilities were to resolve those issues um, were on the table. And and back in 06, the league had just pulled out of its tailspin. You know, with um, you know they're only a couple of years out of um, of the the contraction. Um, and what 07 was when we brought in. TFC, uh, Toronto FC, and Real Salt Lake, and and the rebuild of the league and the and the growth trajectory began to reestablish itself. So it was it was a it wasn't a time to fight over you know what isn't being given. It's about how do we continue to grow the league so that we'll survive. And obviously, as the, over the last ten years, we've seen massive growth in in domestic soccer. You know, MLS is is no longer in the conversation of will it survive? It's only how big it will grow. And that wasn't really the tenor of the conversations, you know, 10 plus years ago, um, where now it's a, it's a, it's a much different conversation of, of, you know, and, and what the players deserve versus what, you know, in terms of what the league is making is a more valid conversation than it probably was back then. Um, and, and so now the, those conversations are more real. The, the, the stakes are higher, what people are willing to fight over and, and potentially walk out. Um, uh, you know, the stakes are bigger. And so I think, I think contentiousness, you know, not being involved, it's tough for me to say, you know, where that contentiousness factor lies now. But, but I think that we're seeing uh, posturing from both sides right now about, uh, potentially going to war, you know, potentially at least the, the conversation of a strike has been floated, whether we get there, um, we'll see. But, but I don't really think that that was a realistic option back in, you know, Oh nine when I was there, um, that, that, that was something people were, were looking to do. I, I don't think the league had was at a place where that made sense for anybody. Um, and I, I don't know if it does now, but, but it certainly there's more to, to talk about than there was then. If you had to put your money on it, would you say that there's going to be a lockout or no? Um, or a strike? <laughs> you know, for me, for a long time, I've I've struggled with a strike, uh, you know, with the idea of a strike, and and the reason I say that is the 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 current landscape of of you know the CBA and and players. Uh, in the league is such that there is a lot of diversity in terms of player, you know, what the players want, um, where the players stand on things. You know, first first and foremost, you have domestic player needs versus international player needs in terms of what's important to them, what their current landscape is in terms of income and, and benefit. you know, conditions, benefits is across the board the same, but compensation for internationals is typically quite a lot more than it is for domestics. Um, and so the key to a, a strike is can the players association convince international players to walk with them and not only walk, but stay out as long as it takes to win that fight. Um, 
you know, I think the Players Association, just from looking from the outside, has made great strides in terms of developing the relationships necessary to have um, international players uh, walk and stay out. But but I, I think the question remains is, you know, w- when the lights come on, when, when it gets serious, when talk is serious, will they stay? Because I think there are a lot of international players in MLS who that are very happy with their with their situations and, and with the, the contracts they have. And, and they rely on those contracts um, to live, to stay here in America, uh, all those things. Um, and will, you know, when things get serious, will they, will they buy in and stay on board? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. So if I had to guess if there's a strike coming, I still have questions about that being the case, but um, I do think that they, you know, versus where they were even at the last CBA five years ago, um, you know, I've seen tremendous progress in terms of the players' commitment and, and unity um, with the idea of of doing something like this. But um, it's 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 one thing to talk about it and say and say you you want to do it. It's another thing to actually do it. Um, and so um, I'm not fully convinced that if if pushed, they would they would go there. That's fair. One of the things that would, you know, make them not be able to reach an agreement would be some of those harder issues to solve. And you said that they likely already solved a lot of the the easier to solve differences. Um, I know that a lot of players have spoken out about travel and, and charter flights and all of that, and that's a big, big issue. What other things are going to be hard to solve in this negotiation? So – so first off, I'll say that I, th- I think what's been interesting is, and, and very smart on, beh- on behalf of the Players Association, is that they made it a point to separate um, player travel um, as a, as almost separating that issue out from collective bargaining in and of itself. And the reason why I think they did this is because it's it's something that affects everyone. If it affects not only the players, it affects the coaching staffs. Um, it's it's a it's a point of contention for many facets of the league. It benefits everyone. It benefits the the quality of the product, which is just important as important to the league as player safety and player health is to the players. And so, by separating it out and trying to address it in in and of itself individually, um, allows it to be taken off the table for the rest from the rest of the negotiation. Because if, if you leave it involved in the overall negotiation, it becomes a, well, we gave you player travel. Now you need to give us something from the league. Mm. Um, and so I think by separating it out, it says, listen, we all agree this is a problem. How do we solve it? Let's put that on the table first, and then let's get into the negotiation where everything else that matters, where we're, we're horse trading something you want for something we want, Player travel's already been taken care of because everyone agrees it's a problem and needs to be get, gotten better. So I think that was an interesting strategy, if in fact that's what they meant to do. Um, uh, but it seems to me that that was their plan: was to let's get this out of the way, let's get it out in public, because there shouldn't be much pushback. And it's just a matter of, you know, do we go all the way, all in, and, and have all chartered flights? I, I don't think we're going to get there, but but let's get that resolved, and then let's start talking about the nitty gritty compensation issues, benefits increases, and all those type of things in a separate conversation where we can start 
nickel and diming who's going to get what. So I think so. So that was an interesting early part of the negotiation for me to see that happen. And I think as as we dig into the issues now, it's it's again it's it's shaking out. You know, here's the pool of money that's available to players. How do we make it more fair? Uh, you know, um, you know, fair for all players involved. Um, and then, you know, free agency, uh, player, you know, unrestricted player movement seems to be a, a major component of what the players are looking for. Um, how do they how do they achieve better than what they got the last time? Um, you know, you could say that last negotiation they got a very restricted form of free agency um if you can even call it that the re-entry draft is you know is is a one idea and a take on free agency um and there's obviously a lot more room to go there so i think between you know for me compensation and 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 budget rule budget rules around that compensation and then player movement are the two battlegrounds um and, and how far can the Players Association move the needle in, in both of those um, with this veiled strike threat at this point um, and, and just how serious we're going to get in the coming weeks to how far they're willing to push on, on both of those areas. Matias Almeida recently made some comments about um, some sort of rule change with 22-year-old DPs. What have you heard about that? So, so since that uh, that statement, it seems very likely that they are have that the league is having conversations about um, <clears throat> about changes to the DP rules. Um, and, and to me, uh, on the outside looking in, it seems that there that that is a statement from on behalf of the league that they are not ready to open up the the, the rules that to make them more seamless, more easy to work with um, for all players. You know, the, the fact that they want to put even more detail and spec- specificity into how players enter the league, what that means for clubs, it is almost a, th- this is the direction we want to take it in. We realize you guys want less. There's, you know, this statement tells me that, that the league is considering more detailed rules about how players come in. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, from from a league standpoint, you see this this wild shift in, or not wild, but but a dramatic shift in the change of the league for being open to sell young players abroad, and and a lot of what this rule change is talking about is course correcting the way the league has been for many years in terms of being reticent to sell players to being far more open to doing so, and so bringing in forcing clubs to bring in younger players into the league through the DP rule. And, and again, you know, modifications to TAM means that the player pool from the international, you know, international player pool is going to get much younger and uh, continue to get much younger. And, and what we've seen thus far is a younger international player pool is far more appetizing to international clubs abroad for player acquisition. So to me, you can debate back and forth. Are those rules showing that they want to, you know, maintain control of these player mechanisms? Um, you know, that can be debated. But but what is clear to me is that they want to continue to push clubs to acquire players that will be value, valuable in the transfer market. 
because the the next phase, you know, the, the league has grown exponentially and very, very successfully on, you know, in the player marketing side, you know, sponsorships, um, you know, all those revenues, those typical revenue streams that you see um, in professional sports here in America. But, but the one area in which most in every other pro sport in the United States does not have available to them is revenue through player sales. Um, and that is a, that is one revenue stream that MLS is not fully taken advantage of in, in their first 25 years of existence. Um, and, and I think part of this movement is clear to course correct that um, because you see players available leaving MLS and going abroad and, and, and the transfer fees that are being offered are, are still are probably a little bit below market value of, of what these players are actually worth if they were coming for another from another league in throughout the world. Um, but typically, players coming out of the United States and, and Canada have been undervalued in the market. You know, you, you, you know, Alfonso Davies being probably the one example um, that, you know, that's broken that mold. I think they want to move more in the direction of how do we make more sales in the Alfonso Davies space. And a lot of that is you have to change perceptions of what the, the quality of player leaving our country and going abroad is. So, you know, Miguel Almiron um, is another great example, but, but then you see Lucho Costa, you know, available on transfer, you know, the, a club thinks they can strong arm MLS or are unwilling to spend what they think is, you know, what the what MLS views as a va- you know a fair market value. So Lucho goes unsold, um, and then you know he's he becomes a zero asset for the league. So I think part of this this mechanism and change is to course correct those financials so that we're, we you see exponential growth in the transfer fees here domestically um, uh, for players on the outbound. Um, and if they can do that, then then that's going to help the league overall. And then the next CBA conversation could be, you know, even a bigger boon for, for all sides if there's more money flushing into the league for players going out. So so there's a lot going on with that conversation, with that one specific component of the conversation right now <laughs> um, that, that could have major ramifications, I think, in the next half dozen years for the league overall. Oh, that's really interesting. I I don't think I'd made that connection. Uh, and so, yeah. So there's a lot going on with this and a lot. We've talked about a lot. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, are, what are we missing? What, what haven't, what do we need to know about all of this stuff that I haven't asked about? Um, you know, I, th- I think for me, you know, what, what's interesting, what's going to be very, very interesting in this conversation um, is you know, just how much growth can be had um, in typical CBA negotiations with, with you know, a, a strike threat that that is is where it stands. You know, however serious that may or may not be. You know, what's happened once before, as I said earlier, is that the previous MLS Players Association sued the league um, for massive change in in. Uh, in the way the league operates to, to ultimately try to break up single entity. Um, as long as single entities survive, you know, exists, many of the things that your, your died in the wool soccer fan and, and um, you know, pro rel diehards and all those type of people, things aren't going to change dramatically. Um, you know, single entity will remain 
um, in place in, in much of its current form uh, unless there is a, a much more significant threat than, than a strike, um, in my opinion. You, you have to be talking about litigation um, to ultimately change that pathway. And, and there's been a lot of, again, a lot of change in the game since the last time a lawsuit came, came down the pike. Um, to this point, there's been no conversation whatsoever about litigation that could potentially change the direction of, of the league. Um, that doesn't mean that those conversations aren't being had. I would imagine if litigation were to ever strike, it would come out of nowhere um, f- to the public. No one would know it was coming until it hit. Um, so who knows that there could be, you know, major advances in terms of, of that course of action. I don't know. Um, but, but really if, if we're going to get serious, we're going to get crazy about a change in how our league operates, you know, that needs to come into the conversation. And as of right now, it's, it's not there. Um, you know, and, 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 and why that is and why that isn't, you know, there's, th- that's probably a whole nother conversation in and of itself. But, but I think really what we're talking about in terms of with a strike, a potential strike threat looming, we're talking about, you know, changes on the edges, you know, um, not major, major, you know, structural changes to the way the league operates. Um, and, and we're talking about how much better, can player movement happen? You know, you know, can, can restrictions on player movement be loosened up quite a bit? Um, I think you'll see some changes in, in terms of that. Um, do I think we'll see full, res- you know, free agency? I'm, I'm not confident of that. Um, you know, in, in terms of player, you know, player uh, budget rules and, and how players are treated under the overall budget. Do I see significant changes there? No, but again, how much can we move the needle in terms of, you know, having so much with, with TAM, you basically have about 50% of the overall player budget, you know, reserved for internationals um, and coming in from outside the league. And, and I think, um, you know, seeing changes in to support domestic growth, um, you know, for working in the game, working in, in domestic scouting, which is, is, is my business now. Um, how do we value our domestic players more? Um, you know, it, listen, the, the influx of international players into our game has most definitely improved the product. There's no one that would argue that. Um, but we have to continue to, you know, the only, if you can't count on your domestic leagues, and that's MLS, that's USL, that's any other league that exists, NISA. Um, if you can't count on your own domestic leagues to, to develop your players from your country, um, who else is going to do it, right? It is right. beholden upon us to develop our players. And if we're going to improve as a soccer nation, we have to find ways to develop our players better. Um, and and part of that is putting money into players um, in salaries in terms of compensation so that they will commit to this as a full-time job, as something that is a long-term opportunity for them. Um, and so, you know, the this, this CBA negotiation is critical to that venture and how, how we fairly compensate domestic players um, so that to for that ultimate goal of, of improving the quality of player that we develop in our own country. All super, super interesting, and we'll figure out uh, – I guess we'll all get to watch and see how everything shakes out. Um, another thing that's interesting, you kind of touched on a little bit. Um, since you moved on from the Players Association, you've been involved in a pretty interesting project. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah. So, you know, after leaving the Players Association, I've spent, uh, you know, some time working club side. Uh, I've worked uh, as a domestic scout um, in MLS, um, as well as uh, a technical director, general manager for multiple USL clubs. Um, and through those experiences, um, it led me to launch my, my company, um, the soccer syndicate, which is a domestic, uh, independent domestic scouting company, uh, to support clubs at all levels, um, both here domestically and, and also internationally, um, to identify players, um, for better opportunities here in the United States. And so we work, um, we, we work on behalf of clubs, um, in a world in which, you know, in a country our size, uh, and when you comp- double that with the size of Canada, um, you're looking at a market territory that is the size of most of Europe and and and, a- and into Asia. Um, and so, scouting a, you know two countries of, of this size makes it incredibly difficult uh, for clubs to to finance a, a proper scouting outfit on their own. Um, to, to do this themselves, uh, you know, each individual club. And so what we're hoping to do is source information um, to clubs at all levels uh, that will fund our project uh, to provide them the scouting data they need to make smarter decisions, um, you know, more more educated decisions on players. Um, and so we're now a year and a half into our project, and, and uh, we've seen quite a bit of growth. Um, you know, we've worked with uh, with – you know, at this point, domestic clubs, both in the U.S. and Canada, um, you know, in, at the MLS level, the lower division levels, um, to provide them with scouting information. And I, I expect our client pool to grow significantly uh, as we move into the next year. We have quite a few proposals out that we expect will be um, added to our, our client pool. Um, and we continue to work on uh, a few relationships abroad um, that will, will broaden our our. Uh, our client pool, uh, and, and give us, uh, you know, more opportunities to, to spread our information throughout the world. Very cool. And if you are listening to this and you're interested in, um, what Scott's got going on with the soccer syndicate, you can head over to my other podcast, uh, FC nation podcast. Scott and I went real deep into domestic scouting and had a real, uh, deep conversation, deep conversation about that over there. So I'll put the link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, Scott, thank you so much for taking your time and, and helping us learn a little bit more about all what's going on with the Players Association, the owners, and the CBA. Oh, my pleasure, Dustin. Thanks for having me on today. Thanks again to Scott Resendez of the Soccer Syndicate for generously taking his time to help us learn about the CBA process and all the things that are on the table and going on in that process. You can find him on Twitter as at bizoffthepitch and his company at thesoccersyndicate.com, at Soccer Syndicate on Twitter. Our website is dallassoccershow.com and our Twitter is at dallassoccershow. Make sure to subscribe if you like this and thanks so much for listening. Take it easy, everybody.